we are back here for part two of the interview with Barry Spanier. We are at Fred's place in Salsalito. And if you haven't heard part one, I highly recommend you listen to that story, his amazing story of building a ferro cement boat, sailing through the South Pacific, losing it, getting shipwrecked, and surviving. It's an amazing and life-changing story. And when we left off, Barry, you were... We left so New Zealand, me and my girlfriend. We had enough money to fly to Tahiti. And I had friends in Tahiti. And uh, my friend in Tahiti said, oh, we can live in our little shack out in uh, Papayari. It was like a platform with a roof. No walls or windows or anything. And it had a little out, outside shower. And, and so we had uh, three months living in this idyllic place right by the lagoon and you know we didn't have any money again but the same thing you just find a way you know and in the beginning we were just picking fruit and scrounging around and making it work you know and then we met this guy who had a cal 39 and uh, charles priester was his name and and he needed his sales all fixed and I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll fix your sails and get everything organized. And you give us a ride to Hawaii. We organized all that. I got, found a sewing machine. I repaired all the guy's sails. I did some rigging work. We loaded his boat up with food and took off and sailed to Hawaii. When we got back to Hawaii, Jeffrey Bourne, who was my mate when the ship sank, he met us there and we went to Maui and we're going to open a sail loft. And that's what we did. And that's what you did. And that, that started the whole next phase, you know. And if people Google you today, they will find your sail work is associated with windsurfing. With windsurfing, right. But we so started our sail loft to be commercial sailing. And I was really into commercial sailing. And uh, I'd done... You know, a lot of thinking about it and writing and drawing and stuff, but I lost all that when the boat sank. When you say commercial sail, you're talking about bringing sailing back to cargo. Cargo. Yeah. And tell, tell us more about that idea. Well, it's logical, you know. It's just the wind, good power, and, you know, at the time oil was so cheap, it, it really didn't matter. You know, you could have burned oil forever, and it was only more of a, you know, an ecological consideration than it was the idea of saving money or anything, because there was no way you were going to save money. You had to have more crew and, you know, more elaborate kind of boats. And But it was just the idea that we should be using wind power for commercial purposes. Yeah. You know? And so we got a bill in the Senate. Spark Matsunaga was a Hawaiian senator, and... He submitted this bill, and and it was during the time, it was in the 1980, and Jimmy Carter was president, and there was the big oil shock, and there was all this other stuff going on, and, and nothing ever happened with it, but, you know, we did that. And then in January of 1980, uh, there was a storm in Maui that basically wrecked all of our customers. We had a just a warehouse full of junk from wrecked boats and no business. Uh, but we had a lot of materials. And um, these guys were 
windsurfing on Maui. Three guys windsurfing on Maui. And windsurfing was a big deal by then, but not on Maui. And uh, so it turned out that they were very tightly connected to Hoyle Schweitzer, the inventor of the sport. One of them was his son, Matt, and then then there was Mike Waltz, and then Alex and Greg Aguera. Those were the main people. And they were teaching uh, on the west side, which is, you know, leeward side of the island with not much wind. And they were teaching people how to sail at the Sheraton or the Hilton or somewhere, whatever hotel was over there at the time. And, and then they were sailing at Hokiba, which is on the north shore. And our loft was on the north shore. They came into our loft, hey, can you fix our sails? And, I had so much experience racing El Toros and fin dinghies and okay dinghies and boats with flexible masts and gee, these sails are just terrible. They're sleazy material and they blow out right away and how can you use this stuff, you know? Well, what do you want to do? We'll make you new ones. So we made them new sails and they worked way better. and they had uh, fat heads, you know, like, you know, the fat head trend in yacht racing. Well, we had fat heads in the 1980. You know, it only makes sense to have a fat head. <laughs> if you have a fat head, then you have more sail all the way down, is that? Well, you have, what it is, is when you have a point on the top, basically until the foil is, wide enough you're not getting anything out of it all it's doing is creating turbulent Mm. air which then washes out the whole sail so if you can have a fat head you can have a properly twisted foil shaped thing all the way from the top down. all the way from the top down makes it more like a wing right so we we told them you should have wings not windbags you know yeah and uh, we started making these things and between January of 1980 and April of 1980, we reached into the world of windsurfing to the point where this German company came and contracted us to do designs. And we were off to Germany and off to Hong Kong and meeting Neil Pride. And uh, it, it was crazy. It was like going from being totally, absolutely broken and blown away and then windsurfing came and suddenly we we had this business that was just going nuts and uh, so we had five amazing years of of growing windsurfing and 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 evolving the equipment because there were no rules and here we were with no rules you could just do whatever you wanted and boy it was fun i think it's amazing that this skill that you had learned when you were young yeah. that had taken you all the way through the South Pacific. Once again, that's right. And I up. never used my skill as a dinghy sailmaker then. I was into heavy duty, you know, hand sewn rings and, you know, hand roping. And uh, that, was, that was my thing, was make it all rugged and tough and long lasting. And then to all of a sudden get into something where the whole rig only weighs 10 pounds and and you're flying with the flying fish that really you know because i raced 505s and 
and Flying Dutchman and stuff, and I knew what high-performance sailing was like, and here we were out there just flying in the ocean, and it was extraordinarily exciting. Did you get into windsurfing yourself? Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah completely. You know, I was real fast because I was tall, and, you know, tall people go faster. Now, some of your sales helped set speed records. Well, on speed windsurf. records. 1983, we went to Weymouth, and... and and we were the first to go over 30 knots in the arc sail area class. And, and then we broke other records for years. And then I got involved with racing. And I was Bjorn Dunkerbeck's personal sailmaker for 12 years and won 12 world championships. And, and then it just got to be business. Yeah. And it wasn't really much fun. And the traveling got to be work, and it wasn't much fun. Yeah. And there were wives and children and divorces, and like Zorba said, the whole damn catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> I want to quickly stay on windsurfing, though, and ask you what your thoughts are on um, the foiling. That's oh, it's only now. natural. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, whether the, the foiling thing is... Um, it could be an answer to a lot of a lot of issues on the ocean, you know. If you could scale the foiling thing up to three or four hundred feet and make boats that easily do thirty knots with low drag and you know low fuel consumption, and it's on its way. Yeah, it, it may take another ten or fifteen years, but. You know, there's been a lot of work done on this. If, if you really start looking into hydrofoils, you can see that for 50 years, people have been developing hydrofoils. Uh, the Russians made a lot of them. Uh, there was a company in Honolulu, Navship, uh, Navitech, they call it now, and uh, they, they built 10 different kinds of high-speed surface craft for Department of Defense stuff. One of the things that goes through your career is that innovation and thinking of new ways of doing things. I'm sure you were doing that when you were building Seminole and you're doing oh, that yeah. when you were building sails for windsurfers. I don't know where that came from. I mean, I kind of spent a lot of time on a ranch with an old grandfather who was very strict and tough, and but he gave me a lot of freedom in the tool shed. You know, I could do anything I wanted. I could. You know, if I wanted to make a gun stock out of Myrtle Wood, he no problem. He'd sort me out. And I was grinding and sharpening and doing things that 10 or 11-year-olds probably wouldn't normally do. And, and, you know, milking cows and whatever else that goes with being on a farm. But I think there's something about that kind of thinking, maybe. That, that could be where I got the idea that you could do anything you dream of, you know. I love that. That brings us to some of your current projects. Yeah. Because once again, you're building a boat. Yeah. That, that may or may not be a really great thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you've uh, uh, decided to do it once again. So. Oh, yeah. Well, the first boat was... See, the first boat, I didn't know anything about ocean sailing. Okay. So I just wandered around and looked at old boats and read books about old boats. You know, you read uh, 
you know, Arthur Beiser or any of the, oh, the proper yacht. And mm -hmm. everything was how it was supposed to be. And, and so I built a boat that was like other boats. But it was already um, another era. And I, I, I could have taken a big step and didn't. And when I got actually sailing, I thought, boy, this is really stupid, this boat. It's hard to live in. And, uh, I kept wanting to tear it apart and, and rebuild it in some way that was more comfortable. And, and when I was in Tahiti, I was with this guy, Patrick, and he was even more radical, crazy-thinking Frenchman. And we would sit around drawing pictures of boats. And, mm -hmm. and he was really into the junk rig and had a lot of convincing arguments why this was a good thing and we wanted to build boats that had no metal in them hmm. at all no particular reason but you know this is a challenge you know let's build a boat doesn't have any metal you know okay great that'll be exciting <laughs> so we drew all these pictures of these boats and they were generally flush deck and not a trunk cabin but more like a, a doghouse kind of thing and and they had more Chinese kind of bows because that's what he was into. You know, a junk has kind of a, almost a bow like a punt, you know. Can, they can even be flat across the front. But more like a scow. Yeah, they're bluff like a scow, yeah. I drew all these boats and there were pictures and, and then it went away. And 20 years went by just like that, chasing windsurfing all over. And, Finally, when windsurfing was really kind of over in my head, you know, I had business kind of going down and the windsurfing got taken over by kiting and, and I was older and yeah. I wanted to do something different. You know, when that happens, if you're smart, you do it. And a friend wanted a sail loft in Lahaina like we dreamed about and said, hey, I got a building and... Uh, Let's do this, you know. So he gave me the freedom to design the loft and buy the equipment and fit it out, and and now, you know, I run it. So this is a new business. A new business, yeah, completely away from, it's called uh, West Maui Sail and Canvas. Okay, and Maui yeah. Sail is where you did the windsurfing. Maui right? Sails was the windsurfing thing, yeah. And I sold Maui Sails to a partner Eight years ago, something like that. Yeah. You know. So where did the inspiration, this new new boat is called Rosie G. Rosie G. And so the plans had been mulling around in your head for, for like yeah. you said, 20 years. So I years. started doing sketches again. Ah, okay. All right. And, and I talked to Jim Antrim a bunch of different times during, towards the end of my windsurfing time, thinking, oh, you know, get a, just build a boat. And, know go sail away again and, and uh, so I knew him and he, he was you know I always knew about him and and Patrick the guy that I lived with in Tahiti he had Antrim design a beautiful 72 foot catamaran for him so the Tamarama and uh, so there was another connection that was good you know we both I knew that Jim was crazy enough to work with Patrick he probably would be okay to work with me and and I had all these sketches, and, and then I got into really drawing, because I had drawn before, made proper drawings for the Seminole, you know, working off of this old wooden boat design, I converted it to be a, 
you know, a cement boat. So it needed, you know, other other things. You know, it needed things that weren't in the plans for a wooden boat. We just sure. basically used the lines to create the hull. So I knew what I was doing, and I got something that was pretty close. And then, uh, hey, Jim, you want to have a look at this, you know? And, and so we went and had a couple beers, and he looked at the drawings, and I said, what do you think? And it took him a while. It's sort of, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an unconventional boat. Yeah, because, you know, it had a full scow bow that's eight feet wide, two feet from the bow, and uh, very shallow draft. I wanted uh, lee boards at the time instead of a, you know, so I could have, take the boards up and down, have them external so that you didn't have to have any functioning thing inside the boat, you know, and, and a junk rig. And I'd been thinking a lot about the junk rig because, you know, aerodynamic development f for sailboarding was so far ahead of anything that was going on in yachts. You know, we were going 40 knots. Yeah, and they could never even deny that. You know, here we were, we were going 40 knots. I was making a thing that you could hold in your hands and go 40 knots or even 50 knots. And... Uh, so that, you know, the balance of the rig and the way it twisted and, and the people I worked with, the aerodynamics people, and I worked with a really good aero, PhD aerodynamicist and she turned me on to a lot of cool stuff that unconventional thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, her big deal was nothing matters but angle of attack. Mm. I mean, that's it. All the rest is just BS. It just sounds good, and and uh, but she says if you make something that's got a nice smooth shape, it'll go through the air better. But without angle of attack, it isn't going anywhere. All this stuff about the f air flowing over the top of the wing and making a vacuum that's holding the plane up is total BS. If there's no angle of attack, the plane isn't flying. So when you say angle of attack, explain that for the layman. You know, your wing is in the wind, and you can make it have a zero degree angle of attack, and it'll go through the wind without any lift at all. If you have negative angle of attack, it'll drive you into the ground. Theoretically, you should be able, if the plane weighs 10,000 pounds, you should be able to fly over a scale, and all of a sudden there'll be a 10,000 pound input into the scale from the downwash off of the wings, if all this theory is correct. But really, it's just angle of attack that's holding you up in the air. And, and if you didn't have that, you wouldn't be going anywhere. Well, it's the same thing with a sailboat sail, you know? If you can't sheet the main in, you aren't going anywhere. And uh, windsurfing, same deal, you know? You gotta be able to sheet in, hold on, and then the sail gets gone and it starts flying in the wind, but it isn't gonna fly unless you maintain angle of attack. And so I believe that the Chinese rig, which was working effectively more than a thousand years ago to sail people all over the place, and you know, that, a lot of that knowledge was lost. I believe that there's something inherently right in that form and the fact that the sails are sheeted from the leech and they're, they're very low tension 
you know, it's a low tension rig. You know, a modern rig on a sailboat, it's under thousands of pounds of load all the time. Everything's under this load. The rigging wires are on, you know, like on our west sail, the, the head stay loads might be 4,000 pounds. I mean, it's really cranked up there. Everything's under stress and tension. And I figure that translates into personal tension. And when you're sailing, you put aside the fact that one cotter pin could cost you your rig. You put aside that a, a crack in a turnbuckle could cost you your rig. You just sail along blissfully happy, or you're aware of it and you're under tension, just like your rig is all the time. And oh, so I know that from personal experience. Yeah. So, Not just the rig, but all the systems. An, on the an unstayed rig starts to relieve that. Pretty soon, there's only one element of failure, pretty much, that can affect you, and that's if the mast broke off. But that's it. Nothing else is going to be a problem. All the loads are really light. Sails, almost, you know, they're, they're just barely there, and you sheet them in until they got angle of attack, and then away you go, you know? And there's been aerodynamic studies that show that, that the mast is not causing any problem in terms of how the sail works and the boat sails. So it doesn't matter whether the mast is on the weather side or the leeward side, the sail still works good because you can deliver that angle of attack effectively over the whole leech with light tension. I think that's going to translate into soft sailing and, and less healing moment. So one of the reasons that we're lucky enough to speak in person is that you are here, over here from Maui in the San Francisco Bay Area, to work on Rosie G. Tell right. us about how construction is coming along. You know, Cree Partridge is the builder, mm -hmm. and um, he went to Berkeley at the same time I did, so we're about the same age, and, and we had a lot of uh, friends that we worked with through the years that never, you know, we never knew about each other, but, you know, he worked with John Palmer, who was a computer guy who developed our uh, designs, some of our design software and stuff back in the, in the late 80s, and, and he, John Palmer was Cree's business partner for a while. You know? And so we had tried to go to other places to get the boat built. Uh, we tried three places in Hawaii, and they were all too busy or didn't want to do it anymore, or the EPA shut them down. Uh, it was all, you know, just couldn't make it happen. And then uh, we tried Betts up in Seattle, and then Jim says, well, why don't you go to Berkeley Marine, you know, because uh, he's building a 40-footer in there right now, and he might consider building your boat. You know? So me and Samantha went there and, and looked around and had a chat, and a couple days later we went back and, are you ready? You want to do it? And he said, sure, I'll do it. So that's how it got started. And that was in January, Oh, that was in October In October, last year. okay. Yeah. And then construction began in January. And then construction began in January. And I came over and we set up the station molds and got everything lined up and started to put the first skin for the plug so we could see that it was fair and smooth. 
And Jim devised a way to shape the bow that was pretty interesting because it's an odd thing to try and form that shape. Yeah. So we got all that together, and then the next time I came back was a couple months later. The plug was solid, and we were putting the core bond on and doing a lot of sanding and smoothing and sanding and smoothing and fairing and whatever and getting to the point. And by the time I left that time, it was basically ready to begin the, the next part of the process. Yeah. We, we showed up, they had just done the inside skin. So the inside skin is solid and uh, almost all the core foam is on the hull now. Everything's ready and the keel's in place and the mast has been made and the end motor's there. We have electric motor from electric yacht and uh, all the running gear and the propeller and we're gathering and the windows and doors for the doghouse should be there in another couple months you know they come from a company in canada diamond sea glaze it's called so the hope is once she's in the water rigged to take her out the gate and yeah to Hawaii? yeah we'll we'll sail around a little you know make sure everything works and yeah. then head south you know, head for Hawaii, oh, yeah. go to Maui. You know, in Maui we have the a sail loft so we can make cushions and awnings and covers and whatever else is required to go really cruising and yeah. get the boat more together. And, but it'll already be in pretty good, you know, good enough to make a passage to Hawaii anyway. And then from then on, we're, we, we don't have any real plans. Exciting. That's Just go. Just go. The next chapter. Yeah. Get back down into the lagoons and, you know, wake up in the morning and jump over the side and whatever you do when you're just going. I love it. <laughs> There's one more innovative project that I want to talk to you about, and that's called Baleen. Tell me about this idea. I had this idea, and I did this sketch, and it was of a catamaran ship, a big ship, a couple hundred feet at least, 80 feet wide, and, and it has a conveyor belt tongue that uh, goes down maybe 15, 20 feet underwater, and the conveyor belt's made out of a mesh, like chain mail kind of mesh. And, so the ship goes along at very low speed and picks up plastic directly out of the water and then it goes into a shaker, hopper, cleaner and then it, it, it's micronized. That's a new process that turns the plastic into micron powder. And then you can take that and do two things. One thing, you can gasify it in a gasification equipment and use the syngas to generate electricity that'll run the craft. Mm. So that was my original thing, is that this thing's going to go along and it's going to eat plastic and using a gasifier, turn it into the power that runs the ship. Interesting. So it could be a completely self-contained digester of the plastic in the ocean. And there's no reason why this can't function right now with 
technology that is well developed and it's just a matter of somebody putting some real dough. You know, there's 30 guys on the planet could do this with pocket money. $15 million would be a lot. You know, to think this guy's got 40 million to go and pick the plastic up and haul it back and do what with it, I don't know. But my idea is it never goes anywhere. It just turns into heat and energy. And the energy runs the ship. Well then, while I was doing all this research about plastic and everything, I found out that there's companies that are converting plastic to diesel. And there's six refineries that do that in the United States already on land. So it's conceivable that you could also harvest the plastic and a kilo of plastic becomes a liter of diesel fuel. And if you think how many millions of pounds of plastic are out there, this becomes something that's conceivably financially viable. That you could be taking all that plastic and converting it to oil that burns in another motor and never makes it back anywhere. It's gone completely. I think it's a really good idea. And it's something that's totally attainable. I mean, any decent naval architect, marine engineer could whip out some simple ship with two big motors, an electric generator, and a gasification plant on one side, and an oil refinery on the other. And I could even see it going to the place where you would have plastic pirates and people going out there organizing floating refineries and trying to make money at it. And, no, oh, that's, that's my section of the ocean you're taking. <laughs> Instead of fighting over the fish, fighting over the plastic. Fighting the over ocean. the plastic. Mm -hmm. Love it. And, and you know, it, it's so viable that a windsurfing friend of mine who was the first guy to go over 50 knots on a GPS, he has been buddies with me for 20 years and, and his girlfriend works for a, a huge European company that is a waste management company. So they already are fully into waste to power. And this idea she presented to their board of directors and they're excited about it and they're talking about it and they have their own dreamers and engineers thinking about it and they could do it too. He, he also owns a shipping and logistics firm too. So it really fit together really perfectly well, you know, and it's a privately held single ownership, 15,000 employees. He has the wherewithal to be able to uh, execute something like this, and, and it's, they're discussing it. From my way of looking at it, that's an impact that's there already. And, you know, Larry Ellison or any of those people, they could do this with the, pick up the phone, make it happen. And I, I could I see it comes to 50 or 100 of these ships out there just scouring the sea clean until you know, like I said in my website, you know, if I wrote this little story that made it sound like it was already happening. And, and for me, if, if I could be a, a 102 and none of the ships had any plastic to harvest anymore, I'd be really happy. Tell us what your website is. So if people want to read more about that, find your book, 
Um, yeah, BarrySpanier.com. BarrySpanier.com, and that's spelled S-P-A-N-I-E-R. N-I-E-R. S-P-A-N-I-E-R. BarrySpanier.com. Barry, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to meet you and to talk well, to you. I'm sure we'll have more conversation in the future. I'm sure we will. <laughs> I'm excited to follow what happens with Rosie G and your other project. Yeah, well, Rosie G will keep you interested. Yeah. you got to go over and have a look, you know. I'd love to. Because it's to. really there now. It's In the beginning, it looked like a ragged skeleton, but now it, it's a boat. It's a boat. It's got the ports in the side and the cutouts in the bulwarks, and and the, you can, the shape's fully defined, and the keel's on the ground outside the door. I'm excited to see that junk rig so on it. Yeah, well, I will be too. That's the other thing is, you know, modern materials are going to make the junk rig a different thing, right? Because the Chinese, they had giant timbers and bamboo and and woven jute and all kinds of strange whatever would hang up there was what they made the sails out of. And it was heavy and uh, ungainly looking. But this is going to be... You know, the whole the mass weighs 200 pounds, and and the uh, I'm hoping the battens are going to weigh seven pounds a piece, and we'll make the sail out of uh, you know really lightweight modern materials, and if we can get the whole sail under 150 pounds with electric winch, we'll we'll be happy. Excellent! I can't wait. We'll talk to you then, for okay. sure. Great, man. Thanks. Aloha. Aloha. Well, since that interview, I did drive over to the Berkeley Marine Center to see the Rosie G under construction. I was actually there just this past Saturday. Barry and Samantha were over from Maui again. So I popped over there to say hi and take a look at the boat as they were preparing her to be flipped over, she's upside down right now, flipped over and moved to a tent where they can finish up construction. Again, it's a Jim Antrim design and the 42-foot boat is really one of the most unique cruising boats I've ever seen. I think with the junk rig, she's really gonna turn heads. If you wanna see some pictures of the boat right now and the plans, you can head over to the Out the Gate Sailing Instagram account. That's just Out the Gate Sailing on Instagram. Or you can go over to BarrySpanier.com. That's Barry's website to learn more about the boat and Barry's other projects. That's it for this week. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next week, smooth sailing.